millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of sexual violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. A milkman was going about his early morning rounds in St. Stephen's Court in Bath. June 9th, 1984 was a day he would never forget. As he journeyed along his usual route, he noticed something on the ground. He followed what appeared to be a trail of blood, which led him to the source, the body of a teenage girl. She wasn't moving. She had been brutally stabbed a short distance from her home. At the time, DNA testing, a tool that would soon revolutionise criminal investigations, was still not in use. Without such a reliable method of analysis, the inquiry was exceptionally challenging for the police to identify a suspect or make substantial headway in solving the murder. It was not until several years later that DNA fingerprinting was first used. Over time, this groundbreaking technology had evolved leaps and bounds, reigniting hope for solving cold cases that had long remained dormant. Unsolved murder cases across the United Kingdom were now being re-examined through the lens of this revolutionary innovation. These advancements would later prove that the trail of blood along St. Stephen's Court had not in fact come from the victim. Her murder has defined the lives of her family. When she failed to come home in June 1984, her mother ran into the street, responding to a police officer calling her daughter's name. We've only got to look at Melanie's photograph. Who can do that to somebody? It's 
not a man, he's a monster. How could he do that? Welcome to Season 8, Episode 9 of They Walk Among Us. A podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Nestled within Bath is the picturesque suburb of Lansdowne, a place the Road family called home. Along with their three children, Anthony and Jean lived on St Stephen's Close. Anthony, a civil servant and Jean, a housewife, had relocated to the area from Glasgow, Scotland in 1982 for Anthony's role working at the Ministry of Defence. Among the family was Melanie, a bright and ambitious 17-year-old A-level student attending Bath High School. Melanie was popular and performed well in her chosen subjects of chemistry, maths and geography. She had a promising future. Headmistress Doris Chapman fondly recalled, She was an intelligent girl, quiet and very pleasant with a lot of character. The family had moved a lot, but according to her mother, Melanie always found it easy to make friends. Because we move so often with the MOD, with my husband's job, she had several different schools, and she made herself welcome wherever she went. I, I, I worried about her, but no, no. She needn't have worried, she'd walk straight in and she was at home. And I think what helped her was because she was so bright with everything that she did. She did well. Uh, In fact, when it came to uh, O-levels, my husband, he said, I can't help her anymore. She's just taken over. I just don't know what she's doing. So. She was very bright. I I always look at her as um, a child with an old head on her shoulders. And even her siblings said the same. Melanie's aspirations lay in the field of business administration or archaeology. And in June 1984, she received some exciting news. Two universities in Scotland had extended offers for Melanie to enrol, presenting her with more than one promising opportunity for higher education. Melanie exuded a quiet confidence and enjoyed light-hearted activities with her classmates. During weekends, she found joy in the company of her friends, especially her best friend Susie Licoma. Susie recollected, We like doing silly things like making up dance routines to Michael Jackson together. Melanie also spent time with her boyfriend Michael Casolis, a young man pursuing business studies at Bath Technical College. Their relationship had blossomed over the past nine months and they were excitedly looking forward to a summer holiday together in Michael's home country of Greece. On the evening of Friday, June 8th, 1984, 
Melanie paid a visit to Michael Casolis at his flat in Bath. They were joined by his brother Manolis and their friend Mike, who came from London. Deciding to make the most of the weekend before Melanie and her classmates faced the stress of A-level exams, the group planned to head into the city for a night out. Around 1.45am they left the Bonash nightclub and walked towards the Empire on Grand Parade. While Michael, Manolis and Mike were heading in the same direction, Melanie said she was going home to Lansdowne. Michael offered to pay for a taxi, but Melanie declined and decided to walk. The route took her along Broad Street, crossing the A4 London Road, then walking up Belvedere and turning into Camden Road. Finally, she reached St. Stephen's Road and set off to St. Stephen's Close, where she lived. At about 5.45am that morning, Tony Noonan was busy working, delivering milk in the Lansdowne area. He was accompanied by his young son, Ian. As they approached St. Stephen's Court they noticed a trail of blood on the ground. Following the trail, they discovered Melanie's body. She was about a quarter of a mile from her front door on St. Stephen's Close. She had been stabbed multiple times. Tony Noonan later said, I can't get the sight of her face out of my mind. She was so young. I'll never forget the taut expression on her face. When officers arrived at the scene, they quickly uncovered a clue that could identify the young woman. A keyring with the name Melanie was found near her body. The police attempted to locate her family, and coincidentally, an officer saw Melanie's mother, Jean, who was out looking for her daughter. I got into the car and he took me back to the house. And that's when all hell let loose that I knew my daughter was never coming back again. And my whole life was taken over by this horrible deed. The devastating news was delivered to Jean that her daughter had been murdered a short distance from the family home. The police found Melanie's blood-stained underwear nearby, and evidence of semen was discovered on her clothing body and mouth. The grim scene indicated that Melanie had been stabbed while still dressed, before being stripped and sexually assaulted by her killer, who then redressed her without her underwear. The pathologist William Kennard determined that she had suffered 26 stab wounds, eight of which were inflicted to her breasts with a sharp-edged implement. While there was evidence of what was described as sexual contact between Melanie and her attacker, the pathologist concluded there was no evidence of rape.
following the brutal murder of Melanie Road, the police launched a search for her killer. At the forefront of the investigation was Detective Superintendent Tim Herford, who set up an incident room at the police station to coordinate the inquiry. Given the frenzied nature of the attack, detectives speculated that the perpetrator might have sustained injuries after being cut in the struggle. Detective Superintendent Herford appealed to members of the public to come forward if they knew of any individuals exhibiting fresh, unexplained injuries. As the police began investigating Melanie's murder, they conducted thorough door-to-door inquiries at properties close to her route home. During these interviews, several witnesses provided valuable information about the events of that night. One woman living on Camden Row recalled being jolted awake by a loud scream. In addition, two other individuals in the same area reported hearing unusual and disturbing sounds coming from who they believed was a man. One witness vividly described the noise as someone bellowing, voicing some form of remorse or regret. The other witness recounted the haunting noise as loud howling and wailing, giving the impression that whoever made the sound had witnessed or been involved in something, quote, dreadful. Throughout the course of the inquiry, the police discovered that Melanie's purse was missing. To aid in their search... A photograph of a similar black leather purse with a half-moon brass clasp was released to the media. It contained a small amount of money. The trail of blood found at the scene became a crucial piece of evidence for the police. Detectives believed it likely originated from the killer as he made his escape rather than from Melanie. Determined to identify the person who murdered a teenager, the police sought to learn more about Melanie's friends and loved ones. As her classmates began their A-level exams on Monday morning, officers visited the school to interview them, doing their best to cause a minimal amount of disruption. Melanie's boyfriend Michael, his brother Manolis and friend Mike were questioned but eventually cleared as suspects. The murder sent shockwaves throughout the city of Bath, leaving its residents uneasy, unsure if the person responsible was still in the area or had quickly fled. Detective Superintendent Herford expressed grave concern about the killer's capacity for violence, urging the public to report any sightings of blood on vehicles in the days following the murder. He stated, I am very afraid that someone knows who this blood-stained person is and is covering up for them. Police remained on the lookout for the murder weapon, requesting local residents to check their gardens and bins for any potential evidence. Concerned for the safety of women in the area, 
The authorities also advised against walking home alone at night and urged extra vigilance. Of particular significance was the fact that approximately a month prior to Melanie's murder, a woman had been raped in Henrietta Mews, around a mile from the crime scene. The proximity of these incidents led to speculation that the same individual might be responsible for both attacks. At around 1.50am on June 12th, a phone call came into the incident room from a public phone box. The caller who willingly shared his name declined to provide his address. According to Detective Superintendent Herford, the man imparted crucial information pertaining to Melanie's murder. However, the call abruptly ended, leaving the police eager to locate him. To reach out to the caller, a media appeal was made, in which the individual was told by the police that they would ensure his anonymity was safeguarded. Detective Superintendent Herford emphasised, we need to ask him one question, and his answer could lead to the murderer. He is not a suspect. He is a witness. Anxious about what might happen, members of the public who had a connection to Melanie hesitated to come forward, concerned the killer could track down their children. One apprehensive parent whose son was friends with Melanie spoke with a reporter for the Western Daily Press. What if the killer reads his name in the paper and comes looking for him? A lot of parents are thinking the same as me. The police launched a poster appeal, distributing flyers with a detailed description of Melanie's appearance and the clothes she wore on the night she was murdered. She was wearing a black cardigan, dark blue baggy cotton trousers, lilac low-heeled slip-on shoes, and a pair of pendulum-style earrings. It was hoped that this information would jog someone's memory as the police sought witnesses who might have seen Melanie on her way home and could provide crucial insight, including the possibility of her being followed. One witness eventually came forward, describing an encounter with a man and a young woman sitting on a wall outside the Museum of Bath at Work on Julian Road around 1.30am on June 9th. The police considered the possibility that the young woman could have been Melanie. However, Julian Road was slightly off her usual route home. Melanie's parents were still too grief-stricken to speak with the media about their daughter's murder. However, on June 14th, Melanie's boyfriend Michael pleaded for information. He had been left traumatised by what happened. Michael said, Anyone who knows anything which could lead to finding Melanie's murderer, please get in touch with the police. That same day, another tip came in. A potential witness reported a sighting of a young woman near the murder scene, 
accompanied by a six-foot man who was described as black. They were observed walking along Lansdowne Road, crossing the junction with Guinea Lane at approximately 3.40am, several hours before Melanie's body was found. This route aligned with her usual journey home, and the female's description bore a striking resemblance to Melanie. Detective Superintendent Herford appealed to the young woman and man to get in touch. While police followed up on this tip, the man and young woman who was seen sitting on a wall outside the Museum of Bath at work presented themselves and were ruled out of the inquiry. In an attempt to trigger the memories of witnesses and gather potential clues, on June 15th the police organised a daylight reconstruction of Melanie Rhodes' final journey home. Dora Mott, a civilian typist who worked at Bath Police Station, assumed the role of Melanie, dressing the same as she had on the night of the incident and following the same route Melanie would have taken. Documented by television crews and newspaper photographers, Laura retraced Melanie's journey, hoping to garner new information. Following the reconstruction, a fresh tip was received by the police hotline. According to the caller, they had seen a man cycling along Lansdowne Road at 2.10am on the night of the murder. He was described as white with a medium build, was bald and wearing what appeared to be a dark tracksuit. The police appealed to this man to reach out so he could be eliminated from the inquiry. Officers had still not heard back from the caller who reached out on June 12th, so on June 18th they sent out another appeal asking him to get in touch. While attempting to track down people of interest, another fresh lead came in. According to a witness, they had seen Melanie talking to a man in the Bow Nash nightclub on the night of her murder. The pair were seen speaking sometime between midnight and 1am. He was described as young with a medium build brown hair and a side parting combed across the top of his head. The witness said this individual had been talking to Melanie for some time. Detective Superintendent Herford said, We are appealing to anyone who thinks he may be the man to come forward. We also want to hear from customers who think that they can remember the man. The caller from the phone box had still not called back, and on June 19th police announced they were making a final bid to trace him. That same day, the young woman and man who were sighted near Lansdowne Road came forward to identify themselves, and were also ruled out of the inquiry. On June 20th, Melanie's parents decided to talk to the media, issuing an emotional appeal to the public to assist the police in apprehending their daughter's killer. 
Anthony and Jean express their profound grief. Melanie's death has shattered our lives forever, and nothing can replace her. Only time can soften our pain, leaving hopefully the memories of the good times we had together. Her attacker obviously needs help, and finding him will bring peace of mind to all the other parents in Bath. Believing that someone out there must have information about Melanie's killer, Anthony and Jean emphasise that this individual could be a member of their own family or a close friend. The bereaved parents urge the public to search their hearts and find the courage to come forward to the authorities if they harboured any suspicions about anyone related to the case. Their appeal ended with, For the sake of parents everywhere, Melanie's murderer must be found. Please help. Come forward now. Three days later, the police took a decisive step by issuing an ultimatum to the caller from the phone box, who had yet to come forward. They set a deadline of 10am on June 26th, stating that if the caller did not contact them, they would disclose details of the phone call to the public. Detective Superintendent Herford clarified that this measure was to encourage others to assist in identifying the caller. When he failed to respond, the police adhered to their promise and publicly revealed his identity on June 26th. His name was Philip Green. In his phone call, Philip recounted witnessing what he referred to as a minor incident on Lansdowne Road in the early hours of June 9th, around the same time Melanie was walking home. He had initially hesitated to contact the police, but did so at the insistence of a friend. Detective Superintendent Herford emphasised that Philip Green was not considered a suspect, but a crucial witness. The police urged him to come forward to provide further information. Additional details about Philip were released, including the possibility that he might have been using an alias. He was noted to have a West Country accent and was driving a Rover saloon car or a similar vehicle at the time of the incident. Philip reportedly travelled from Tracy Park Golf and Country Club in Wick to Radstock. A friend in the car might have also been residing in that area. Investigators requested anyone with knowledge of Philip or his friend to come forward promptly. They had already identified several potential addresses for Philip and granted him until 2pm the following day to identify himself. In the absence of his response, the police initiated their plan of action by investigating the addresses linked to him, located up to 150 miles apart. Tips also continued to trickle in from the public. A potential witness reported seeing a man wearing grey shoes, light grey trousers 
and a dark grey shirt with sleeves rolled up in the Lansdowne area just before Melanie was found. According to the caller, they had seen the man sitting on a low wall near St Stephen's Church at about 5.20am on June 9th. He was around 25, 5 feet 9 inches tall and weighed approximately 11 stone. He was white and had shoulder-length mousy hair. As the case progressed, a significant amount of data was amassed, including over 2,000 statements and 2,500 lines of inquiry that were meticulously card-indexed. During the inquiry, detectives considered innovative tactics, using computers to streamline and collate the vast amount of information gathered. Avon and Somerset Police had employed a computer successfully in a previous investigation, during the hunt for the killer of 80-year-old Winifred Locke in North Petherton the previous year. Embracing this technological approach... They hoped to utilise this method to aid in their quest for answers. On July 19th, a new lead captured their attention. At around 5.20pm the day before the murder, a man exposed himself to a woman as she drove out of Lansdowne Grove into St Stephen's Road. This was only a short distance from where Melanie's body was discovered. The information provided by the witness described the man as white, around 25 years old, standing between 5 feet 8 inches to 5 feet 10 inches tall with a dark or tanned complexion and collar-length dark hair. He was noted to be wearing a blue denim jacket, blue trousers or jeans, and a patterned shirt. Detective Superintendent Herford expressed his keenness to locate the man or anyone else who might have seen him. News of the individual who exposed himself so close to the murder scene spread quickly, leading the women of Bath to come together in a symbolic protest against the escalating dangers they faced in the city. The rise in sex attacks had left women fearful of venturing out alone, particularly at night. Protest organiser Dilly Everidge said to the Western Daily Press, As well as the rape and the murder, there has been a marked increase of violence to women over the past few months. I have lived in Bath for five years, and this is the first time I have felt nervous about going out. Bath used to be known as a safe place, but not now. Soon thereafter, the police began investigating what newspapers referred to as a major lead involving a man, a woman, a bicycle and a caravan. A witness who had recently returned from holiday contacted the authorities after reading about the case in a newspaper. He recalled encountering a woman and a man who looked similar to the male police sought on the bicycle by a caravan parked on the Lansdowne to Wick Road at Battlefields, 
a location approximately three miles from where Melanie's body was found. Twenty people who were commuting in the area corroborated the presence of the caravan. The female seen with the male was middle-aged and was wearing a wide-brimmed trilby hat and culottes. Detective Superintendent Herford stated to the press, We are not seeking more sightings of the caravan, but we are looking for the man and the woman. Following this appeal, a handwritten note was discovered dumped on the seat of a patrol car parked outside the police station in Bath. According to Detective Superintendent Herford, it contained important details about the murder, and he asked for the writer of the note to come forward. It suggested that the killer was a homeless person who had been seen in Bath some days before Melanie was killed. He was described as 40 years old and strange-looking. He may have been staying in lodgings, a bed and breakfast, a hostel or sleeping rough, eating meals in local cafes. He stood between 5 feet 10 inches and 6 feet tall, with ginger hair, a moustache and possibly a beard. The police appealed for this man to come forward. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. As the weeks dragged on for Mel and his loved ones, the police continued in their efforts to identify a suspect. However, the investigation seemed to move at an agonising pace. In August, Chief Superintendent Harry Cox left the task force taking on a new role, with Detective Superintendent Herford stepping in to fill the vacancy. Ten weeks had passed since Melanie's tragic death, and the team of 100 detectives had been reduced to 20. The following month, Detective Chief Inspector Malcolm Hughes, now leading the investigation, announced they were searching for a new person of interest. A resident of Claremont Walk reported that his dogs had awoken him around 2.30am on the night of Melanie's murder, as they barked at a man running away. The man was described as being in his 20s, approximately 5 feet 8 inches tall with a slim or medium build and curly collar-length hair. To find this person of interest, the police initiated door-to-door inquiries in the area. Despite their determined efforts, the murder weapon and Melanie's purse remained elusive. In an attempt to locate these crucial items, a task force of 30 police officers armed with metal detectors, machetes and scythes was assembled. They scoured a vast expanse of woodland, rough grass, scrubland and bushes in the Beacon Hill district and the footpaths leading to Claremont Walk, the area where the unknown man was seen running. Unfortunately, the search yielded no evidence to aid in the investigation. A month later the police began exploring the possibility that Melanie's murder might be linked to the killing of Shelley Morgan. Shelley disappeared on June 11, 1984, after leaving her home on Dunkerry Road to walk her children to school. Her remains were discovered in a wooded copse outside Bristol. Detective Superintendent Hughes remarked on the potential connection between the two cases, stating, Mrs. Morgan went missing on the 11th, and we had a murder on the 9th. It is not something we can ignore. However, no definitive evidence could be found to confirm a direct link between the two crimes. An inquest was held into Melanie Rhodes' death in December 1984. Due to the investigation, Melanie had not yet been laid to rest. Coroner Percy Peplar ruled her death an unlawful killing and commented, 
I'm closing the inquest so that Melanie's family can start the new year with the formalities over. The next day, December 14th, all of Melanie's loved ones gathered at the crematorium at Hakem Cemetery to bid her farewell. There were dozens of floral tributes, and many mourners sent donations to Bath High School for her upcoming memorial. The detectives working on the case mingled with mourners, as the service was presided over by Reverend Gordon Stringer. He read aloud a short account of Melanie's life that was written by her parents. It read in part, Melanie used to say there is so much to do and see in the world. I do not know how I am going to fit it all into my life. Following the service, the investigation into Melanie's murder continued. The police believed the key to cracking the case lay with other revellers out in Bath that night. They had not yet traced everybody who was at the Bow Nash nightclub where Melanie had been dancing before her murder. They wanted to learn if anyone in the club appeared to be paying close attention to Melanie. Detectives postulated that Melanie could have been followed home by somebody at the club who then accosted her shortly before she arrived home. Furthermore, investigators considered that as some revellers were underage, this may have prevented them from coming forward. Early the following year, Detective Superintendent Hughes appealed to anyone who may have been protecting the killer. He stated... The murderer must have been bloodstained and was probably in a disturbed state. It would be difficult for anyone who committed a murder like this to conceal it from the world, even if he is a loner. It would have taken Melanie around 20 minutes to walk home, yet there was not a single witness sighting of her after parting ways with her boyfriend, his brother and their friend. That said, the police had still not identified the man on the bicycle, the man who was seen running, the man sitting on the wall, the man talking to Melanie in the Bonash nightclub, and had not spoken to Philip Green. To mark the first anniversary of Melanie's murder in June 1985, the police talked to top psychiatrists at a number of criminal psychiatric institutions they could not offer any more insight into the unknown killer. As the years passed, Melanie Rhodes' loved ones were confronted with the harsh reality that her killer might escape justice. The investigation into her murder had been extensive, encompassing over 6,000 statements taken from various sources. In January 1987, a man was arrested in connection with an abduction in St Paul's, Bristol. He was accused of attempting to strangle a woman with intent to commit rape after driving her to Tockington. This suspect drew the attention of police working on both Melanie Road and Shelley Morgan's unsolved murders, 
prompting them to speak with him. However, after careful examination, he was eliminated, leaving the case no closer to a resolution. The following year, feeling disheartened by the inability to solve Melanie's murder and bring her killer to justice, Detective Superintendent Hughes stepped down from his role due to declining health. In an interview with the Western Daily Press, he expressed his sorrow, saying, I still see Melanie Road now when I pass that way, or when something crops up. It was an awful crime. If I wanted to succeed in one case, it was that one. For several years, there were no substantial developments or leads in the investigation until October 1991, when the police announced that forensic tests were being conducted to explore potential links between Melanie Rhodes' murder and the murder of Carmel Gamble. The 43-year-old was found beaten to death at her cottage in Stroud on November 11, 1989. Her body had been mutilated with a sharp instrument. Detective Superintendent Malcolm Hart of the Gloucestershire Constabulary believed there were similarities between the two murders. A year later, it was announced that the police were going to interview Christopher Gore in relation to the murders of Melanie Road and Carmel Gamble. Gore had been arrested for killing his parents on September 9, 1991. Gore bludgeoned his father John to death with an axe as he slept at his home in Tedbury, Gloucestershire. When his mother Ruth came to her husband's aid, Gore bludgeoned her to death as well. Intriguingly, all four murders had occurred on weekends and during a full moon leading the police to consider possible connections. Moreover, Gore had expressed admiration for Peter Sutcliffe, the notorious Yorkshire Ripper, and closely followed his trial. Following his arrest, Gore ominously stated, I have committed two major crimes in the area, and you will never catch me for them. The police extensively interviewed Gore at Broadmoor, but no firm conclusions were reached, leaving the investigation with yet another frustrating dead end. By 1995, DNA technology had advanced tremendously. To mark the 11th anniversary of Melanie's murder, the police relaunched the inquiry to catch her killer. They were hopeful, sophisticated new DNA fingerprinting techniques that had since been developed could crack the case. Retired Detective Superintendent Hughes was called in to brief the new team taking over the investigation. The new inquiry was led by Superintendent Peter Hind who appealed to the public to come forward with any suspicions they may have held over the years. The 100-yard trail of blood that led to Melanie's body was believed to have come from her killer. A DNA sample was successfully extracted, 
when the police began speaking with prisoners and sex offenders in the area to try and find a match. Based on the brutal nature of the murder, they theorised that Melanie's killer may have struck again and was incarcerated for another crime. One of the first people to be ruled out was Christopher Gore, when it was found that his profile did not match the DNA at the crime scene. While the advancement in DNA technology helped the case tremendously by excluding suspects, it had not identified the perpetrator. Inspector Keith Jones, a spokesman for Raven and Somerset Police, shared his belief that with the public's help, the killer could be tracked down. He stated, There has been someone thinking about this case for nearly 20 years, someone with information they should have given us. We will accept that there were good reasons for that. They may now feel it is appropriate to come forward with this information. Unfortunately, yet again, no new leads were received. In 2009, BBC's Crime Watch aired a segment about the unsolved murder, and a cold case team announced they were re-examining the case. On Crime Watch, Melanie's brother Adrian spoke publicly for the first time, and detailed how difficult his sister's murder had been for the entire family. Over the last 25 years, it's been a living nightmare to know someone is out there who killed my sister, he said. Melanie's sister Karen added, She had her life ahead of her. She had so much to live for. Before long, three decades had passed. It was the 30th anniversary of Melanie Rhodes' murder in 2014, and once more the police launched an appeal. Investigators began to conduct urgent DNA swap tests on people of interest that had emerged, including those whose names were put forward by members of the public. The new appeal included an emotional letter from Melanie's mother, Jean, who was now 79 years old. Jean wrote, I know it's a long time ago. To me, it's only yesterday. Some people say, why churn the memories all over again? Let it rest. But I can't. This whole episode in our family has torn us apart. Not sure if it will ever heal. While the perpetrator walks the streets, that's if he is still alive, free getting on with his life, he has left the road family in limbo. Yes, we go about our business and life, but we put on a face for the world to see that we are coping, but we mourn for our daughter, sister, Melanie, every minute, hour of the day and night. Melanie's childhood friend Susie Lacoma spoke about the impact of the murder and how she wanted to help, but there were some things that could not be undone. I was very sure that I was going to 
make the most of my life. If she couldn't make the most of hers, then I was definitely going to make the most of my life. And I, I, I would like to think that she would be proud of me. I just feel this is the last opportunity, maybe the last opportunity. Um, and I so want to help Mel's family out. I would do anything to help them out. As time passed, Melanie's father Anthony had found himself living in a fog of dementia, exacerbated by the profound impact of his daughter's murder. Jean's heartfelt letter resonated deeply with people, prompting numerous names to be submitted for DNA testing by the police. Despite the considerable public interest and effort, they were unable to find a single person whose profile matched the one found at the crime scene. However, little did Melanie's loved ones know that they would have to wait only one more year before there was a significant development in the case. In 2014, the police responded to a disturbance in Bristol involving Claire Hampton and her boyfriend. Following the incident, Claire received a caution for criminal damage after breaking her boyfriend's necklace during the altercation. As part of standard procedure, her DNA was collected and added to the National DNA Database. In May 2015, Cold case detectives investigating Melanie's murder decided to run checks on the DNA sample recovered from the crime scene. The results brought about an astonishing revelation. A familial match to Claire Hampton. This discovery indicated that Claire was somehow related to Melanie's killer, prompting the police to focus their attention on her male relatives. This included Claire's father, Christopher John Hampton, who lived in Fish Ponds, Bristol. In June, the police made contact and requested a voluntary DNA sample. Christopher Hampton agreed and willingly provided the sample in a car park outside his workplace on June 1st. Investigator Gary Mason recalled... He approached the car, shook my hand, had a chat, and I got him to sign the consent forms. Mason later said that Christopher Hampton appeared to be extremely calm and showed no emotion at all. The investigator recollected, He gave me the swap. He said he wanted to be notified of the results. We shook hands again, said goodbye, and that was it. He stood out no more than anyone else. A month later, the DNA test results were finalised, confirming a match between Christopher Hampton's DNA profile and the evidence from the crime scene. Consequently, on June 3rd, Hampton was arrested at his residence in Bristol. As he was being led away, his wife called, I'll see you later. Hampton responded, 
No, you won't. Christopher Hampton was taken to the police station for questioning, but remained silent, except for denying any involvement in Melanie Rhodes' murder. On the surface, Hampton appeared to lead a completely ordinary life. At the time of Melanie's murder, he was a 32-year-old married father of three girls living on Broad Street, an area on Melanie's usual route home. Following the killing, Hampton continued working as a self-employed painter and decorator handling commercial contracts. However, in the 1990s, his relationship with his wife fell apart. He met someone else and moved to Bristol, although this relationship also did not last, before Hampton found love again and remarried. His second wife had a son named Darren, and they had a daughter together named Amy. Throughout his life, Christopher Hampton flew under the radar. He was never considered a suspect by the police, nor did anyone believe that he was involved in the savage murder of a local teenager. On July 6th, 2015, Hampton appeared in court charged with Melanie Rhodes' murder. A grieving family filled the public gallery holding hands and weeping as the charge was read aloud. Hampton only spoke to confirm his name, date of birth and home address in Bristol. The case was then adjourned until a hearing later in the week. Hampton was remanded into custody. Upon his return to court on July 28th, Prosecutor Kate Brunner QC said owing to the age of the investigation, a large amount of scientific material needed to be analysed, which would be time-consuming. Brunner stated, The Crown does not want an unrealistic trial date which would then be vacated and result in a more significant delay than is currently proposed. Hampton was remanded into custody once more pending a plea and trial preparation hearing. In August, Christopher Hampton appeared in court via video link from HMP Bristol. He was informed that his murder trial would occur on May 9th, 2016. Judge Neil Ford commented, This is a case which concerned a truly tragic killing as long ago as the middle of 1984. This case is brought as a result of DNA techniques, and even at this stage, there are further items that will be subjected to DNA testing. There is a vast amount of material in this case because of the original investigation, and there have been reviews in the mid-1990s and in 2009 all of which generated further material. This investigation goes back to a time when records were kept on cards as opposed to on computer. Christopher Hampton subsequently entered a plea of not guilty. However, on May 8th of the following year, 
Hampton returned to court, where he dramatically changed his plea. Christopher Hampton gave no explanation, no account of his sadistic killing. Today in court, he said just one word, guilty. If Christopher Hampton has any remorse for what he did to Melanie Road here all those years ago, he has not shown it. He appeared in court to be totally unmoved. You had a sense that this was a man who must have thought he'd got away with it. Following the admission, Detective Chief Inspector Julie Mackay spoke outside of court. Although Hampton has now admitted to murdering Melanie, he has spent more than 30 years living a lie. He has obviously managed somehow to live with this terrible secret. I have no idea how his conscience has allowed him to do that. So where are we now? The day following Christopher Hampton's guilty plea for Melanie Rhodes' murder, he returned to court to receive his sentence. Before it was passed, Melanie's loved ones conveyed their decades-long anguish through victim personal statements. The sorrow on Jean's face was evident as she spoke about her daughter. The huge impact of the horror of Melanie's death permeated throughout the family members, grandparents, aunts, uncles, all relations, including school friends. Who knows what harm it has done to them? My husband returned to work, not sure if he was functioning properly there because he certainly was not functioning when at home. It was suggested I go back to work teaching but I could not have borne the responsibilities of other people's children after what happened to Melanie. We put on a face for the outside world. Once asleep, I hoped I would never wake up so that I could be with Melanie and comfort her. In the courtroom, Jean highlighted how the murder hastened her husband's dementia. The impact was immeasurable. Jean described how she often thought of the horror of what Melanie went through. It hung over her like a heavy weight, something that she could not escape. Melanie's brother Adrian disclosed that for 32 years he had been tormented by the thought of every man he encountered being a potential suspect in his sister's murder. He turned to Christopher Hampton and said, Even my friends. Did they kill our little sister, Melanie? But now I know, thankfully, none of them killed Melanie. You did. You killed Melanie, you raped her, you mutilated her, and you chose to abandon her. You abandoned her when she was dying. Our little sister, Melanie. You took away a very special person who was so close to me. You wouldn't be able to understand or comprehend what she meant to me. She was a lovely girl and I loved her. You couldn't possibly understand how it feels to love another human. You couldn't possibly understand how it feels to show compassion to another person as you chose to murder a defenceless child. 
Aaron Melanie's sister also provided a poignant victim personal statement touching on how Melanie had died hundreds of times in her mind over the past 32 years. She said, I haven't wanted my whole life to be defined by murder, but it has been. Melanie's death has consumed my life, and it's been frightening. For 32 years, I've felt as if I'm living in a horror film, one where the perpetrator has not been caught. Not knowing who is responsible for Melanie's death has been torture. I can't explain the impact of not knowing who the murderer is, where he is. Is he nearby? Is it someone we know? In court, Christopher Hampton showed no emotion in the 90-minute long hearing. No emotion as the gruesome details of the murder of Melanie Rhodes were read out. No emotion as the judge was told that Hampton kept this a secret from his wife and children more than 30 years. No emotion as Melanie Rhodes' mother and brother and sister read out heartbreaking victim impact statements. His wife and his daughter were sitting behind me both blonde hair, the same as Melanie. How could he do that to somebody and then live with people like that and them not knowing? Christopher Hampton faced an automatic life sentence for murder and was ordered to serve a minimum term of 22 years behind bars. In handing down the sentence... Mr Justice Popple well described how Melanie Rode had her entire life ahead of her, a life that was full of promise. Since Hampton had refused to speak with the police about the murder, the details of the case still remain a mystery. The judge told Hampton, Only you will know precisely how you approached her and carried out your attack but certain things are plain from the evidence. It was a lengthy and brutal attack for your own sexual gratification. The judge continued telling Hampton, You married and had a child and lived your family life for all those years knowing the extreme misery you must have inflicted on your victim's family, but you were too callous and cowardly to put an end to their heartache you will very likely die in prison. After the sentence was handed down, Melanie's mother Jean provided a statement through Avon and Somerset Police. On behalf of all the family, I wish to thank first the police and their team for their dedication and perseverance to at last bringing this case to a close. Their generosity of time and compassion to the Road family have been outstanding and humbling. Thank you and well done. Secondly, a huge thank you to all the friends of the family who are always there in the background, ready to give support in more ways than one. And lastly, thank you to the press for not encroaching upon my pri our privacy of our family as much as it was experienced 32 years ago. Yes, of course we miss Melanie. 
in our lives and to, to never see her again hurts beyond repair. So now may she rest in peace. Bless you all and farewell. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our patrons for their support. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.